Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Steel Pier. Life's a party, why don't you come to the Steel Pier? No one's ever gloomy or glum at the Steel Pier. Dip your toes into the ocean, rub a little suntan lotion, pay your dough and ride all the right. Sit on the boardwalk watching the tide. But first, how are we doing? How are you doing? I hope this episode finds you well. As always, I do have a few points to make here in this opening segment of ours. Who here is surprised by that? Why do I say such things? <laughs> if you listen to the show, you know how the show works. Okay, so Anton reached out to me and pointed out that last week I cited Cabaret as premiering on Broadway in 1969. And Anton said to me via email that it actually premiered in 1967. Here's the thing, Anton, we're both wrong. I made sure of it. The production actually premiered in 1966. Okay, so you were closer than me, but I did want to make sure that we got that on the record. I want to talk about Benny's birthday. It is coming up. Okay, his present is on route. That is your tracking update, listeners, in regards to the present. He cannot open it. Here's the thing. He cannot open it until our next recording session. Are you listening to me, Benny? You're giving me a heads up. Uh, <laughs> what you're doing is you're nodding. You're bringing your head up and then you're bringing your head down, which I described as a heads up. <laughs> thank you for giving that heads up to me. Very thank you. Very thank you, Betty. <laughs> at that point, yeah, I know at that point it will be a belated birthday present, but Benny is fine with that. I talked to him about it. Happy early birthday, Benny. The official date, by the way, is January 14th. Of course, I wanted to remind our listeners because birthdays are important. I also want to talk about Broadway HD, okay? As we all know, I've been a Broadway HD subscriber for maybe, I think this is my third month. We are in my third month of my subscription. I sat down to watch Fame the other day, not the original film, but the the live touring production that was filmed. And holy cow. So I, I just wanted to watch something goofy. I did not understand that that show is interminable and terrible. And no real offense to everyone who was in that production. I'm sure everyone was really just trying their best with really awful material, but everything was just off. And I don't want to, I don't want to meditate on that sort of negativity for too, too long. I gave up after about 15 minutes. There was a character named Joe Vegas who started singing about his erections. It was such a ripoff of a chorus line. I couldn't deal with it. And so I turned it off. What did I watch instead? Well, I watched Sheridan Smith in the West End production of Funny Girl. And oh my God, that was excellent. If you have not had a chance to watch that yet, do yourself a favor. Sheridan Smith is so good as Fanny Bryce. So good. And that production actually caused me to raise Funny Girl in our ranking. We will get to that later, but Funny Girl has raised... I think it has gone up about 10 slots, if not more, maybe more than a dozen. So thank you very much, Sheridan Smith, and thank you to this production of Funny Girl for showing me that the show was way too low in our ranking and needed to be moved up. Okay, that's my opening segment. Now let's get the show facts for Steel Pier. Show me the show facts. All right. Steel Pier was a 1997 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on April 24th, 1997 at the Richard Rogers Theater and ran for 76 performances. The book was written by David Thompson, the music was by John Kander, and the lyrics were by Fred Ebb. The show was conceived by Scott Ellis, Susan Stroman, and David Thompson. The director of the original production, Scott Ellis. The musical director, David Loud. Choreographer, Susan Stroman. 
scenic design, Tony Walton, lighting design, Peter, and I apologize, Peter, in regards to the pronunciation of your surname here, but I'm going to go with Kazarowski. I feel like I've encountered this name before, and again, Peter, I apologize. Sound design, Tony Miola, costume design, William Ivy Long. The original Broadway cast of Steel Pier included Gregory Harrison, this was his Broadway debut, Daniel McDonald, also his Broadway debut, Karen Ziemba, Deborah Monk, who we would know from the 1995 Broadway revival of Company. She played Joanne in that production, but she was also one of the Cup sisters in Pump, Boys, and Dinettes. It's true. Who else do we have in this cast? Well, we have Allison Bevan, Joel Bloom, Ron Carroll, Kristen Chenoweth, Broadway debut of Kristen Chenoweth. I had no idea this was her Broadway debut. We also have the Broadway debut of John C. Havens, John Mackinnis, Gregory Mitchell, Jim Newman, Casey Nicola, Timothy Warman, and Valerie Wright. And as always, I apologize to everyone whose last names I I did not pronounce correctly. I can't stand the fact that at the end of the day, I will always be making some mistake in that arena. So I gotta say... I don't know if I say it every week, but I'm gonna really emphasize it now. I do apologize. Tony nods. Okay, so the show was nominated for Best Musical, of course, but also Best Book of a Musical, David Thompson. Best Original Musical, Score, John Kander and Fred Ebb. Best Actor in a Musical, Daniel McDonald. Best Actress in a Musical, Karen Ziemba. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Joel Bloom. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Deborah Monk. Best Scenic Design, Tony Walton. Best Choreography, Susan Stroman. Best Direction of a Musical, Scott Ellis and Best Orchestrations, Michael Gibson. So in total, 11 nominations, but zero awards at the end of the evening. A few points of comparison for you. The original Broadway production of Kander and Ebb's Chicago also received 11 Tony nominations without taking home a single award. Kander and Ebb managed to beat this record when the Scottsboro Boys received 12 Tony nominations and zero awards. To add insult to injury, Steel Pier received nine Drama Desk nominations, none of which resulted in an award. At a certain point, you have to assume Kander and Ebb no longer gave a rat's ass. I assume. The following plot summary is based on a reading of David Thompson's book, a copy of which I was able to obtain through the Chicago Public Library. I'm bragging. In other words, we are not relying on Wikipedia this week, which is a nice change of pace. Before we get into the plot, I would like to provide a rundown of our main characters. Rita Racine is a talented singer and dancer, as well as the first woman to kiss Charles Lindbergh after his 1927 flight across the Atlantic Ocean. This earned her the nickname Lindy's Lovebird, and she has been coasting on that fame ever since. Bill Kelly is a daredevil stunt pilot who performs in air shows. He's a real hot dog. Mick Hamilton is the promoter and MC for a series of dance marathons. Mr. Walker is the floor judge for Mick's dance marathons. He is a patsy. Hello. Shelby Stevens is a good time gal. Her marathon partner is Luke, a fellow who likes to dance while playing the harmonica. You gotta get a gimmick. Happy McGuire is a farmhand from Utah who is married to Precious. The couple lost everything in the Great Depression. Everything. Uh, don't ask. Precious McGuire is a wide-eyed gal who hungers for fame and fortune. Johnny Adele is a gold medal Olympic athlete. He is an intimidating brute who dances with Dora Foster. Dora Foster used to have all the money in the world. She is now penniless. Buddy and Betty Becker are vaudevillian siblings who are quickly falling out of style. Buddy never stops talking. Buddy and Johnny nearly get into a fight. Okay, let's talk about Act 1. The first image we see is that of Bill laying face down in a cloud of smoke. As he slowly brings himself to a standing position, we hear the roar of a biplane. Bill discovers a raffle ticket in his hand. All right, he says. I understand. I've got three weeks. Three weeks! The year is 1933. Rita Racine is walking along the beach of Atlantic City's Steel Pier when her suitcase bursts open. Oh no! Bill comes to the rescue. They begin to chat while gathering Rita's possessions. She makes it clear that while she may be competing in the Steel Pier Dance Marathon, it will absolutely be the last marathon of her career. She's tired of being known as Lindy's lovebird and wants nothing more than to settle down at her little 
personal home at 12 Ocean Drive. Bill is aware of Rita's fame. As a stunt pilot, he flew as part of an air show in Trenton where Rita happened to be performing. He even caught a bit of her act. Rita has a problem. Her dance partner for the marathon has not shown up. Bill offers himself as a partner, but Rita turns him down, convinced everything will work out. We cut to the Steel Pier Ballroom, where time is running short for those who wish to sign up. Mick, the marathon's flashy MC, interviews Rita over the radio and encourages someone from the crowd to step forward and save her. With only seconds to spare, Rita begrudgingly teams up with Bill. The marathon begins. Bill is a fairly mediocre dancer, though he learns quickly with Rita's help. He shows her the raffle ticket, which he bought back in Trenton. The ticket was a winner, and it entitles him to a dance with none other than Rita, Lindy's lovebird. Bill only has three weeks left to exchange the ticket for his prize. When Rita asks why he didn't collect two years ago, Bill sheepishly admits to crashing his plane during a stunt. Oh, of course, Rita says. You're the pilot who crashed during my act. They share a hearty laugh. Ha ha ha. One hour has passed, and the contestants are released for a 15-minute break. Rita visits Mick in his office, where we learn they are married. Oh, my goodness. No one knows they are married. This is a key point of information we must remember. No one knows they are married. As it turns out, all of Mick's marathons have been rigged in Rita's favor, though he has no clue why her partner never showed up. Rita is worried. How is she going to win with Bill? He can barely dance. All she wants to do is win the $2,000 cash prize and return to their little home at 12 Ocean Drive. Mick reassures her, Don't worry, baby. After today, you'll never have to dance in a marathon again. While on break, the men and women mingle in their respective dressing rooms. Shelby, our resident good time gal, launches into a monologue about living with lumberjacks that I will recite in due time. Dora mocks any dancer who would pick up coins tossed by the crowd, comparing them to monkeys who work for accordion players. Spoiler alert, by the time this show is over, Dora will 100% be picking up coins. Meanwhile, Bill finds a pigeon with a broken wing behind his bunk. He comforts the bird before releasing it through a skylight. Goodbye, the pigeon can fly once more. To review, Bill has godlike healing powers. Pigeons are also known as lovebirds, so there's an obvious metaphor at work here. Lovebirds, Lindy's lovebird, you get it. Time moves forward. Twelve hours have passed. 42 hours have passed. 68 hours have passed. A few of the couples have dropped out, but for the most part, everyone is fine. One couple performs an egg routine. They place eggs on the ground, dance around the eggs, and even toss eggs to each other using their feet. The routine ends with one person holding a frying pan so they can catch one of the eggs. A baby chick pops out of the egg. Hashtag eggs. Mick meets with Mr. Walker, the marathon's floor judge, to go over their plans for the future. You see, Mick has been lying to Rita. He wants nothing more than to host another marathon in St. Louis, a marathon that comes with an astonishing $5,000 payout. The only way Mick will secure that marathon is by convincing the businessmen attending this marathon that Rita can still draw a crowd. Mick reminds Walker he is no less than a god as far as marathon are concerned. The dancers are puppets, Walker is a stooge, and Mick is their god. Time moves forward. 188 hours have passed. Shelby flirts with Happy, making it clear he should ditch his wife, Precious, and stick with her. Buddy and Betty Becker try to impress the crowd in a bid to earn sponsorship from local businesses. Mick shoves Bill to one side and dances with Rita as a way of showing her off. Left alone, Bill realizes he has fallen in love with Rita. 191 hours pass. 266 hours pass. 335 hours pass. Dozens of couples fall out of contention. Mick tells Rita that in order to drum up interest, 
she will need to marry Bill in a mock ceremony. Keep in mind, she does not yet know about St. Louis. The idea of a fake wedding turns Rita's stomach, but she allows Mick to keep pulling her strings. After all, the only thing that really matters is going back to their little home at 12 Ocean Drive. Shelby presents herself to the marathon crowd and sings Everybody's Girl, a salty number in the tradition of Oklahoma's I Can't Say No, The Boyfriend's Safety in Numbers, Kiss Me Kate's Always True to You in My Fashion, and No Strings' Eager Beaver. Precious manages to pull focus from this song by faking a charley horse and revealing her sexy legs to the public. Ooh, wow, wow. Oh, before I forget, Everybody's Girl ends with a cameo from none other than Mr. Peanut. Does your favorite musical include a cameo from Mr. Peanut? I don't think so. While on another break, Shelby continues to flirt with Happy near the Steel Pier Diving Horse attraction, also known as a water tank. Happy makes it clear he is devoted to Precious, and they waltz off to buy cotton candy. Bill meets Rita at the water tank and proceeds to describe his entire air show routine. It's clear Rita wants to ask about the fake wedding, but doesn't have the heart to follow through. Instead, they strip down to their skinnies and take a dip in the tank, which honestly sounds hot as hell. Bill asks Rita for the dance he won two years ago, but a bell in the distance signals the marathon is about to pick back up. No dance for you, Bill. You'll have to try again some other time. 337 hours have passed. Mick puts Rita and Bill on the spot, and in an astonishing turn of events, Bill proposes to Rita in front of everyone. He somehow knows about the plan and is willing to go through with it. This confuses the hell out of Rita and fills Mick with nothing but delight. At the behest of Mick, Rita takes the stage and performs her old Lindy's Lovebird routine. We flash back to the Trenton Air Show of two years ago, where Bill watches Rita from the crowd. An announcement is made. Check your raffle tickets, gentlemen. Who here has won a dance with Lindy's Lovebird? Bill is over the moon. He has the winning ticket. Unfortunately, his pilot buddy has some news. The air show schedule has changed, and Bill needs to be in the air right Right now, oh no. As Rita's routine comes to an end, we hear Bill's biplane tear through the sky. Flash forward to the present. Happy collapses from exhaustion, leaving Precious only 24 hours to find a new partner. To the abject horror of the remaining contestants, Mick proclaims it is now time to begin the sprints. Everyone is required to dress in zany outfits and compete in a foot race. Here's the kicker. While running, the women have to hold on to leather straps attached to their partner's belts. The last two couples to cross the finish line will be kicked out of the marathon. Those who fall while running will also be kicked out. The sprints begin. It's a nightmare. Couples are dropping like flies. Rita and Bill fall to the ground. Oh, God, they're out. Hold on a minute. Bill has frozen time. He is somehow rewinding the moment. <laughs> Welcome to the Black Lodge, Laura Palmer. Bill and Rita are given a second chance, and this time they do not fall. Weird. Act 2. While sleeping in the dressing room, Rita dreams of flying in Bill's stunt show alongside a group of elegant wing walkers. This sequence involves an enormous biplane set piece, by the way, Broadway. The dream nearly ends with a horrible crash, but Bill saves the day. Mick wrenches Rita from her slumber. Come on, your break is over. Rita is in a fog. Was it really just a dream? Happy informs Precious that he faked his collapse and is ready to go home back to Utah. Precious refuses. She's convinced her big break will come if she sticks around for the fake wedding. Happy agrees to sleep under the boardwalk until that happens. Oh, happy. Time moves forward. 340 hours have passed. Buddy is losing his grip on reality, much to his sister's dismay. Bill gives Rita an air show medal he won as an engagement present. The medal reads, For Bravery and Daring. Rita tells Bill to keep the medal for now, asking him to present it again when she has earned it. Did I mention Bill never eats any of the food offered to the dancers and he never feels tired? Bill never eats and never feels tired. Buddy suffers a mental breakdown and drops out with Betty following close behind. Goodbye, Buddy. Goodbye, Betty. 
502 hours have passed. Shelby asks Happy to marry her. She believes they could be happy in Utah. Besides, Precious would never go back to Utah now that she's had a taste of the limelight. Happy declines as he is convinced Shelby would only be ashamed of a hick like him. We cut to the ballroom rooftop, where Mick divulges even more of his plan to Rita. After the fake wedding, they will ditch Bill and make it seem as if Rita has been abandoned. She will then partner with Olympic athlete Johnny Adele. Imagine the drama. The audience will eat it up like hotcakes. Rita refuses, knowing this would also mean getting rid of Johnny's current partner, Dora. She can't do that to Dora. But she caves soon thereafter. Mick heads back to the ballroom and manages to miss Precious, who appears on the rooftop looking for him. Based on what Precious says to Rita, it's clear she and Mick have been having an affair. As a reminder, no one knows Mick and Rita are married or even involved. The fake wedding begins. Precious sings a positively batty number while dressed as a giant piece of taffy, since the ceremony is sponsored by a taffy company. Bill and Rita wed and are placed in a honeymoon tent set up in full view of the crowd. So easy. Bill begs Rita to leave with him. Rita hesitates. Bill begs Rita to follow through on their dance as his three weeks are nearly up. Rita hesitates. Bill gives Rita the raffle ticket. She is about to fall head over heels when the honeymoon tent is torn away. It is too late. Bill leaves the ballroom seemingly forever, and Rita is left alone with the raffle ticket. Mick is ecstatic. Rita can now be presented to the public as a pitiful woman who has been forsaken. Dora declares that she is dropping out of the marathon, having received a telegram about modeling fashion wear in New York City. Hello! Johnny protests, knowing this is probably a scam to take Dora out of the running, but she refuses to listen. Shelby realizes the heartache Rita expressed in front of the crowd was all too real. And in a stunning display of bad judgment, Mr. Walker lets it slip to Rita that Mick plans to host the St. Louis Marathon. Rita screams at Mick, striking him with her fists. You said we were done after Atlantic City. Done, done, done! Well, settle in, Rita, because Mick has another confession to make. He sold their little home at 12 Ocean Drive. You don't got no home, lady. 504 hours have passed. Now paired with Johnny Adele, Rita refuses to dance. She refuses to dance. Mick explodes. He kicks Rita out of the competition and follows her into the women's dressing room. Are you out of your mind? We were so close. So close. He spots Bill's raffle ticket and tears it from her. Is this from Trenton? Why do you have this ticket? Trenton was a terrible show. We nearly lost our shirts because that stupid pilot got himself killed during your act. Rita is stunned. Wait a minute. The pilot who crashed? That guy died? Bill is dead? The world falls away. We are now in limbo. Bill appears before Rita and explains that his three weeks are up. It's time for him to go. It's time for Rita to start living her own life. They embrace, dance, and kiss. Bill vanishes. Rita finds herself caught up in a nightmare ballet that threatens to swallow her up. Oh, God! Will she be forever trapped in Mick's terrible world? No. Rita escapes, and as she heads into the next chapter of her life, she spies the airshow medal sitting atop her suitcase. How did that get there? She reads the inscription once more for bravery and daring. Congratulations, Rita. You finally earned it. For the purposes of this week's episode, I read David Thompson's book. Here is the Shelby Lumberjack monologue that I promised to you a few moments ago. Here is that monologue in full. I will deliver it in character. Quote, I do a tramp act. Brings the house down every time. That's right. After dancing in three marathons, I know how to deliver. I'm a pro. That's because I got stamina. Comes from working on my feet. Five years cooking for a lumberjack camp. Me and 60 loggers. Paradise. Then one day, the whole forest went up in flames. Some of the fellas started calling me Mrs. O'Leary. They said the fire started when I was out in the shed milking the foreman. It's not true. Anyway, I got a job cooking for a marathon 
marathon, and when I saw how much money the winners made, I said, hey, I'm a dancer. I figure if I had the stamina for 60 loggers, I have the stamina for anything. Quote, <laughs> thank you. I used to be an actor. <laughs> thank you. I used to be an actor. I will never get over the phrase, Milking the Foreman. In a shocking twist, Kristen Chenoweth did not play Shelby, though Shelby is 100% a Kristen Chenoweth character. Shelby says to Mr. Peanut, get out of here, you nut. How is that not a Kristen Chenoweth line? I realize this was a long time ago and she would have been too young to play Shelby, who is distinctly an older character. So why not revive Steel Pier now that Chenoweth can play a horny old broad? Lord knows she's done it before. Did anyone else see Holidate via Netflix? <laughs> a dreadful film. I also listened to the 1997 original Broadway cast album of Steel Pier, and I watched the 1997 Tony Awards performance of Everybody Dance. I have nothing but good things to say about this Tony Awards performance. The upstage mirror is a great touch by scenic designer Tony Walton, a fiendishly simple idea that pays big dividends. If you want to convey that Steel Pier takes place in a large ballroom packed with dancers, why not use a mirror to effectively double the size of your space and cast. Brilliant. Chenoweth can be heard squeaking like a pink cartoon mouse throughout a good portion of this performance, despite the fact that she is almost never on camera. I would not have it any other way. Knowing Chenoweth is somewhere on stage squeaking like a pink cartoon mouse is a comfort. Can we talk about how Daniel McDonald is hot as hell as Bill Kelly? He looks like a young Bill Pullman. You are officially in the cream pie kitchen cutie club, Daniel McDonald. Congrats. But let us be clear. Nothing beats that appearance from Mr. Peanut. He thick. Oh, Lord, he coming. The following thought actually ran through my Neanderthal brain upon seeing Mr. Peanut. Holy crap, they got Mr. Peanut to appear at the Tonys? Now there's a star. You hate to see him go, but you love to watch him leave. Sit on my face, Mr. Peanut. Mr. Peanut, you are officially in the cream pie cutie club. Congratulations. This is not a joke. He is in the CPCC. It is official. Listen to the Steel Pier Overture not once, not twice, but three times. I kept coming back because of that transition at the 32nd mark, when we move away from razzmatazz and toward a state of blissful contemplation. 
I am made to sit still during that transition. The piano line takes me out of myself and sends my grateful spirit soaring. Speaking of spirits, does this not remind anyone of Joe Hisashi's score for Spirited Away? Kander and Hisashi are definitely operating on the same wavelength here. This is a compact composition, though not nearly as bite-sized as some of the so-called overtures we hear today, and John Kander is certainly making the most of that time. I expected us to swing back around for a buzzy, jazzy finale, which would have been in keeping with the structure of most overtures. You know, you start high, then you get a little quiet, and then you end with a big, big finish. But no! Once we shift into that romantic, reflective mood, that is where we stay. What a wonderful way to begin. Twelve Ocean Drive, right by the shore. Not many rooms, it only has four. But for now, another marathon, another dead on my feet, another time clock to beat, bruise on my shin, desperate to win, just like it's always been. Twelve Ocean Drive, right by the shore, is the palace I've been longing for. One last marathon. for the sound I'm willing to ride. There's the Ferris wheel, a miracle, that circle of steel. It's funny how nervous it's making me feel, yet willing to ride. This time, although I'll do it, I swear it's the last To Ride is a first-rate introduction for Karen Ziemba. The way she casually lobs a high note at us as if it were a grenade, the way she breezes through Fred Ebb's lyrics, I can absolutely see her on a beach in Atlantic City when she sings this song. I can also see how anyone would fall in love with her at the drop of a hat. Ebb's lyrics have a subtle power that courses throughout this entire piece. They are poetic without being flowery, meaningful without being verbose, and what I appreciate about Willing to Ride is how it is so much more than your average I want song. Rita isn't indulging in a daydream here, not really. She has made a plan for herself, and she is already envisioning the finish line. Other ingenues can sit around with their wouldn't-it-be-loverlies and somewhere that's is. Rita is going to dance her ass off, run away with a $2,000 cash prize, and start a new life with her scumbum of a husband. It may not be a clean plan, but it is her plan, damn it, and you have to respect the steely determination she displays. When you feel the world is sitting on your shoulders, dance. When you're Troubles feel as big as ten-ton boulders. Dance, dance your blues off. Tap bad news off. Shake your shoes off, and worries won't away. When you feel an anger. Inside that smolders Dance, dance, mister Dance, sister Come on, everybody dance Gentlemen, our clock is telling us You have just five minutes before the starting gun And while you're claiming your girls I'll show you mine Meet, mix, mix Come on, gals, let's heat it up
Dance is a six and a half minute sequence that is brimming with tension. The same haunted quality one can find in a chorus line. Think of how the dancers in that show transform into barking mad mannequins while performing one. That is the scary vibe I am talking about. That vibe thrills and unsettles me to no end. I can't get enough of it. I choke up. I tear up listening to this. It is an overwhelming and exciting experience. I want to be in Gregory Harrison's shoes so bad it hurts. Give me your fucking shoes, Gregory. Playing a semi-charming, semi-deranged MC sounds like the opportunity of a lifetime, and I am a fan of what Harrison is doing with that opportunity. Mick is unhinged from moment one. His public persona has an appropriately calculated syrupy quality, but he cannot help but gesture toward the Edward Hyde lurking within. The teeth, ooh, the claws, ooh, the bark, the bite. This is a monster hiding in plain sight. I may not be the physical type one would associate with Mick. I'm a, I'm a twink, don't you know? But you better believe I have those teeth and claws, baby. Meow, er, grr. Am I convincing anyone? If I say jump, up you'll spring. Cause I've got power. You've got power. Lots of power. Tons of power. And power is a powerful thing. You're an honest man. I guess. But when I say lie, I lie. When I say cheat, I cheat. When I say steal, I steal. And what do you say? Yes. Say it again. Yes. Louder, please. Yes. So here's the deal. Good old sport. I'm the star. You support. If I'm mad, you'll feel my sting. I'll kneel down and kiss your ring. Cause you're the subject and I'm the king. But power corrupts, so I'm corruptible. Power destroys, but I'm indestructible. It's a fact that power is a So now we're listening to a straight-up villain song, and I'm having a blast. Is that right? Do I have the lay of the land? I'm enjoying myself. Powerful Thing is a hammy, gleefully old-fashioned number, and I mean that in the best way. Candor and Ebb are hearkening all the way back to Adler and Ross's Damn Yankees with this song. Like Mick, the villain of Damn Yankees, a literal demon named Mr. Applegate, is all too aware of his bad guy status. What's more, Mr. Applegate loves being a bad guy. He adores it. Mick may not sing about cannibals munching on a missionary luncheon as Mr. Applegate does in Damn Yankees, but you better believe Mick enjoys tearing people apart. And frankly, I enjoy hearing Mick indulge his seedy, slimy side. It's fun. I could take or leave a great many villains of musical theater, but Mick feels special to me. I am going to remember Mick. I am also going to remember the astonishing elongated yes we get from Ron Carroll as Mr. Walker? Are you kidding me, Ron Carroll? You just had that in you the whole time? The breath support that would take. I mean, my God, I am in awe over here. Some old Greek called Aristotle said it. If you got it, why not spread it? Dug a rattling in these sabers, Share me with the neighbors. I'm everybody's girl. your passion rages. I'm in the yellow pages. I'm a girl. You 
you won't be disappointed. I'm also double jointed. I'm everybody's girl. Stop it, leaves a lot of fellas cursing. I'm a person needs dispersing. Ah, so don't reaffirm my status. It's absolutely gratis to use my apparatus. I'm every. When they get upright, I feel grand. Everybody's girl. I've already compared Everybody's Girl to a number of musical theater standards, all of which involve a woman saying, hey, I'm down to get down, and there is nothing to be done about that, so we might as well get down. Let's get down. But when you take the macro view of this genre, one thing becomes clear. Everybody's Girl is so much hornier than its predecessors. Shelby is not being subtle. Oh, she has jokes. She's got jokes for days. But that veneer of humor is about as thin as the teddies I imagine are in her dresser drawer. What's the difference between a duck and a buffalo? A duck goes quack quack and are you going to fuck me or not? I still say Kristen Chenoweth would have killed this number, but I can't deny Deborah Monk is taking me for the ride of my life. She is a battleship crashing into the shoreline, ripping, tearing through the boardwalk, and barreling right down Main Street. Toot toot. But what about that big finish? Did anyone else think of when you're good to mama? Mama's good to you! Did anyone else think of that? Here's another question for you. What do you get? What do you get? when you cross a scarecrow with a nun. None your business, now eat crow and fuck me already, I'm scared! now. I still have more time. had to hear a bit of Candor's composition for The Sprints, which is appropriately known as The Sprints. I'm sure I've heard many composers try to capture the sound of time moving in reverse, but no one can do what Candor is doing here. Reversing time is an unnatural concept that sounds like it would put a lot of strain on the fabric of reality, and that is what I hear on this track. Strain. Bill is pushing back on the weight of an impossibly large gear, and that gear will crush him if he falters for even a moment. This is difficult. This is hard. In other words, reversing time seems tough, and I understand why Bill would only invoke this spectral ability once. If it were easy, he would do it all the time, but it ain't easy. Happy. Take me with you. 
We'd make a great team. Somebody older can teach you things. Somebody older can show you how. Someone who's seen it all can help you get through what you're going through now. Somebody wiser who's been around can probably send you safely on your way. Listen and hear what somebody older might say. Someone who'd probably be someone a lot like me. Halfway there, you'd be wondering what you got yourself into. And once you got there, you wouldn't fit in. Yes, I would. It's a different world, Shelby. You'd be ashamed of me, is that it? Oh, no. You'd be ashamed of me. Goodbye, Shelby. Somebody wiser who's been around can probably send you safely on your way. Somebody young needs somebody older, it's clear. Someone who probably be someone a lot like me. I was in no way prepared for Deborah Monk's second act number, Somebody Older. This was a mean-to-me from Ain't Misbehavin' moment, where the only thing I could do was sit down, remain still, and let the song move through my chest like a storm. This song clocks in at just over two minutes. I never want to hear another two-minute musical theater song that fails to make an impression, because as we have seen time and again, you can do everything in two minutes, you can show me the world in two minutes. Ooh, now I'm thinking of songs that clock in at five minutes or longer without making an impression. Tim Minchin should be ashamed of himself. Those Groundhog Day tracks were so, so long and pointless. But let's make sure we give Deborah Monk ample credit here, as she is doing a stellar job with the character of Shelby. I don't recall her take on Joanne being especially memorable, if I may be brutally honest, but I did enjoy her work in Pump Boys and Dinettes. She's underrated! Am I the only one who feels this way? Has everyone else already been on the Deborah Monk appreciation float for years, decades? What do you get when you cross a poisonous mushroom with a broken water pistol? Fuck me! in place all of my life i've been running in place what cuts like a knife is the one that i trusted to help me run fast has left me behind so i'm finishing last and i find that my future's the same as my past and i'm running 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 Struck by the notion I'm stuck in this space With no forward motion After the struggling, the smiling, the scheming I'm shaken awake And I find I've been dreaming It should be goodbye time But I'm spending my time Running, running, running Why am I stranded here choosing Life with a man that I'm losing Why after all that he's done Don't I know what to do How to act, where to run I often talk
talk about how composers fail to live up to the talent of their talent by writing mediocre material, or how a mediocre performer will try to coast on a song they believe is too popular to fail. Why would I write a song that stands on its own when I know this actor can turn straw into gold? Why would I figure out what I can bring to a song when the song is already iconic? Writers should not take advantage of their actors, and actors should not take advantage of their writers. Karen Ziemba, John Kander, and Fred Ebb prove what can be accomplished when everyone is operating on the same level of excellence. Competency, I should say. Listening to Running in Place led me to assume they had been working together for years, if not decades. Years, decades, I've said that twice now. The song is a peach. I have nothing more to say. And two other words to tell you what bliss is. One word is mister, the other is miss is. <laughs> so on the day he gives you the ring. If I were you, I'd sing. Sing, sing. Ah, one describe Kristen Chenoweth's performance of Two Little Words? Well, it's like she's standing in front of a platter. A platter piled high with piping hot, scrumptious hamburgers. And before you can say Bob's your uncle, she has stolen all of the hamburgers. In this example, the hamburgers are Steel Pier. Kristen Chenoweth is stealing the show out from under all of us. Note to self, note to self... Develop the idea of a thief who exclusively steals hamburgers. What I always forget about Chenoweth is how amazing she is when applying her first-rate opera skills. See also her Carnival Cracker Jack turn in the 2004 concert production of Candide. Seriously, is there anyone else on Broadway who can riff operatically like this outside of maybe Audra McDonald? Not Patty, not Bernadette. I'm sure I'm missing an obvious example, if not several. If that's the case, hit me up. Years, decades, decades, years. Okay, that's all I have to say about the Steel Pier score. And now we are going to hear from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. It's Maggie Thatcher. How are you, darling? No, no, put the baby down. Put the baby down. I have an emergency over here. I have to, I have to have you come right over, dear. I, I have been, I have been ransacked, my dear. Oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, that awful little boy, that Billy Elliot came twinkle-toeing his way into my kitchen, don't you know, with all of his dirty minor friends. Oh, they stole my coffee and I want it back. Yes, that's right. My 5678 coffee supply has been completely stolen. Oh, oh, those awful miscreants. I want you to come over here and I want you to investigate, alright? I want you to find fingerprints. I want you to track them all down and I want you to kill them. I want you to kill them and take my coffee back. I want it back, Catherine. Now put the baby down. Uh, uh, who cares? Who cares about your awful little child? Your mewing little cat? You cow! Get over here right now and help me destroy, destroy Billy Elliot! Oh. <laughs> I'm so upset. Oh, 
Catherine, I don't mean to take it out on you. It's Billy Elliot's fault and his awful, disgusting, filthy little minor friend. And what's worse, oh my God, the spirit of my dead husband won't leave me alone. He keeps tapping me on my shoulders and saying, welcome to the madhouse. And I say, go away, you. And he goes, boo, boo, boo. <laughs> Get over here right away. I don't know. I don't know what you're to do with the baby. Put it in a bassinet. Put it in the bathtub. Fill the bathtub with water for all I care. Let the baby drown. If you do not get over here and help me solve this problem, I will have you killed. Do you understand? <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight coffee. I thought I could count on you. And you thought, <laughs> you thought <laughs> that you could count on me to protect you. <laughs> but I am powerless in the face of Billy Elliot and his twinkle toes. <laughs> Catherine, get over here right now. I will kill you. I will kill you. Final thoughts regarding Steel Pier. Okay, I didn't write anything out officially. All I wrote for myself was, riff, baby, riff. That's the, that's the phrase I typed out for myself. What else can I say? I enjoyed Steel Pier so much. Like so many of the other shows we've talked about here on the podcast, a more comes to mind. Steel Pier was just a delightful surprise that I had been sleeping on. I'm pretty sure that I have listened to Steel Pier at least once in the past, but at this point, it was a completely new experience for me, and I am just so grateful to be able to be in the presence of this amazing talent, this writing, this singing, Oh my God, watching the Tony Awards performance was wonderful. And I just, I'll never get over Mr. Peanut. I will never get over him. So thank you so much, Steel Pier, for coming into my life this week. Thank you so much. Now, as a reminder, no, I haven't said it yet. This isn't a reminder. You may not know this yet. In 1997, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Titanic. And the other nominees from that season were Juan Darian, A Carnival Mass, which we have discussed in the past, and The Life. Okay, so... The question is, did Titanic deserve to win the Tony Award for Best Musical, or should it have gone to Steel Pier? It has been a very long time since I sat down with Titanic, but I'm going to make a judgment right now. I'm going to say that Steel Pier did deserve to win the Tony Award over Titanic. I said it. I made it happen. It's done. It is now time for us to rank Steel Pier against all of the other musicals we've talked about here on the podcast. I'm going to put Steel Pier at no number 18 on our list, right between The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas at 17 and Candide at 19. Now, I do have a few changes to announce. Yes, that's right. We made even more changes to our ranking. Funny Girl is now at number 23. Let's see what other changes did we make here. The Goodbye Girl, you are now at 67. Golden Boy is at 69. Pump Boys and Dinettes is at 70. And Blues in the Night is at 71. Are those all of the changes? Yes, I believe those are all of the changes we have made. Now, as a reminder, if you want to check out this ranking, all you have to do is follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod. Go to our likes section, click on the Google Sheet. That's the first tweet you will find in that likes section. Go to the Google Sheet. Click the second tab. That is our full up-to-date rundown ranking. Yes, yes. When it comes to show-related ephemera, I want to talk about the copy of the book that I checked out from the library, the Steel Pier book, because on the back cover, the inside back cover, there was a list of musical cast recordings that you could purchase through Samuel French. Now, keep in mind, this was back in the 90s, and a lot of these shows I've never heard of, so I wanted to throw out these titles because I'm just, I'm fascinated by the idea that there were just these shows out there that at one time had cast recordings that you could purchase. A lot of these shows I could not find on, on the internet. I could not find any evidence of them existing, but here's that list. All That He Was, The Biograph Girl, The Great American Biograph Musical, you know, for those people who really need even more biograph material in their lives, Henry Sweet Henry, The Hired Man, Love from Judy, Of Thee I Sing, Orpheus in the Underworld, hello, Town fans, what is this? We need to look this up. Really, Rosie, that one really cracks me up. Oh, really, Rosie. Robert and Elizabeth, Streets of New York, Birds of Paradise, Charlotte Sweet, Fashion. A musical that is just known as fashion. What about this one? Groucho, A Life in Review. I can't make this stuff up. Love Song, New York Rock. Oh, brother! 
I love an O show. Oh, Calcutta. Okay. Oh, brother. Opal? There's just a show called Opal. We have a show called Sherlock Holmes, not to be confused with Baker Street. And finally, Song of Singapore. I do not trust the idea that that show is not racist. I also want to talk about a video that I hold close to my heart. This is a Townhouse Dippers commercial featuring Kristen Chenoweth. I'm pretty sure this was filmed in lockdown, in quarantine, and the ad is known as Reasons to Have Dip for Dinner. The first reason that we see on screen, we see a little graphic that says, You're hungry now! And... <laughs> in conjunction with this on-screen graphic, Kristen Chenoweth comes running into her own kitchen. I This was filmed in her own home, I assume. She comes running and screaming, yeah! And she says, because I'm hungry now! <laughs> so to review, ah, because I'm hungry now! The second reason, too short to cook. Cut to Kristen Chenoweth doing her best she is really hemming it up. She's trying to jump and grab a red colander in one of her kitchen cabinets, and she's she's honestly going, eh, eh, oh, uh, I can't reach it. And the final reason, ending the day on a high note. So that's a reason to have dip for dinner. Ending the day on a high note. So Kristen Chenoweth dips a townhouse cracker and dip while going, so to review this whole video, ah, because I'm hungry now, I can't reach it. It's amazing. We have linked to it on our Twitter profile. It's not on YouTube. I can only find it via Pinterest. So random. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Mr. Maybe So. Everyone ready? Then away we go. Aha! Uh -huh. Okay, this is a big one. All right, so we have landed in the year 1966. This was a nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for an astonishing 1,508 performances, and that show is... Do you know it? Do you know it? On the other end, okay, say it with me if you know it. It's M-A-M-E, Mame. Oh, Mame, hello. You're here. Well, you'll be here next week. Okay. We'll talk about you next week, Mame. See you then. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can donate $1, 3 5 or $10 a month. Let's say you donate $1 a month. What do you get? Well, you get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes. You get them two days earlier than everybody else else. You get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Thank you for donating at least $1 a month. Elena, Elena is our latest $1 a month patron. Thank you, Elena, and thank you for all of your amazing Twitter threads, your amazing Twitter threads where you listen to episodes and you tweet out your thoughts as you're listening. I love that. Oh, keep doing that. And thank you to Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marques, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, and Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Thank you, thank you. You also get bonus episodes covering the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Alive, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage musical Emma, along with Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, original cast album co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. You also get season one, 12 episodes of Radio Boy and access to M3, the movie musical man. Our next episode of that series drops on January 27th, 2021. It's a special series for which we discuss trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. It's true. Let's say you donate $3 a month. What do you get in that scenario? Well, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout out in the style of a character, actor, or composer 
of your choosing. You also get season one, ten episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and a special one-off episode all about season one of Julie and the Phantoms. Let's say you donate $5 a month. In that scenario, you get everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You pick the subject matter. You also get All I Ask of You seasons one and two. That is 24 episodes of a show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, in which he gives advice to musical theater villains. It's amazing. You also get access to our Broadway and Chicago review series and Shout About It volumes one and two. What are those? Well, those are collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shout outs from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. Let's say you donate $10 a month. In that scenario, you get everything I've already described, plus the Snub Club season one, 12 episodes, a special series for which we discuss Broadway musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. They were snubbed. And starting in April of this year, you are going to have access as a $10 a month patron. You will have access to Turn It Off, a brand new bi-weekly series about off-Broadway musicals. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a nice five-star review. We love a five-star review. If you're streaming, you might be doing that through Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you should. If you want to, you should. At musicalmanpod. If you want to email me, you should. musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny. Oh, my gosh. Happy early birthday again to you, Benny. Alex Green, thank you for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little, thank you for our fabulous music. Oh, ha! You know what that sound means. It caught me off guard a little bit. I thought I, I thought I would never get scared again. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Vida and good night. <laughs>